Pop quiz. Can you list the fruit of the Spirit? More importantly, do you show love, joy, peace? Are you patient, kind, and good? How strong is your desire to exercise faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? A man prayed every morning that the fruit be ripened in his life, and he became the most Christ-like person people around him knew. Stick around for a fruitful review. Hi, my name is Terence, and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. In this episode, I review Faith Life's free book for September. Yes, you heard me right. It's free. So if you have not done so, go create a free account at faithlife.com and get this free book. Download it now and read it later. Today's author is a preacher at All Souls Church UK, contributor to the Bible Speaks Today commentary series, and is the International Ministries Director at Langham Partnership. He completed his PhD in Old Testament Economic Ethics at Cambridge University and continues to teach, preach, and write on the Old Testament, so much so that one reviewer thinks of him as O.T. Wright. He is none other than Christopher J. H. Wright. His book, Cultivating the Fruit of the Holy Spirit, Growing in Christlikeness, is 157 pages long, published in January 2017 by InterVarsity Press. The introduction to this book begins with a prayer, followed by a description of the man who prayed that prayer. I quote, Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That was the prayer that John Stott prayed every day when he first woke up in the morning. It hardly seems surprising then that many people who knew John Stott personally said that he was the most Christ-like person they ever met. For God answered his daily prayer by making the fruit of the Spirit ripen in his life. And what the Spirit of God does, above all, is to make those who put their faith in Jesus to become more and more like the Jesus they love, trust, and follow. End quote. This introduction haunted me. Stott's prayer and life compelled me to rethink what am I doing with mine. I made a decision for Christ many years ago, but I am far from being the most Christ-like person my family and friends know. As I reflect, I realize what happened. I am committed to Christ, but I am not committed to Christ-likeness. I say this knowing and teaching that there is no commitment to Christ without a commitment to Christ-likeness. I often put it in this way, there is no justification without sanctification. I taught the fruit of the Spirit to Sunday school children. I know I have to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in me, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2 verse 12 to 13. I know all this, but after reading John Stott's prayer and reflecting on his life, I realized that I don't have the desire, at least not as much as John Stott did. And so, now I want it. 
I want to be Christ-like. I have started my day, my mornings, praying that I too will bear the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. This, by the way, is the goal of the book. In 2012, Chris Wright preached a series on Galatians 5.22-23 as a prelude to a Langham Partnership campaign titled Nine a Day, Becoming Like Jesus. Nine a Day was derived from a British public awareness campaign named Five a Day to have at least five fruit portions of fruits or vegetables a day. Healthy eaters would ask one another, have you had your five a day? The Langham campaign would have healthy Christians asking one another, have you had your nine a day? Can you guess how many chapters there are in this book? <laughs> Can you guess the titles? And yes, if you exclude the introduction and conclusion, you are right. The, my, the book has nine chapters titled Love, Joy, Peace, Patience, Kindness, Goodness, Faithfulness, Gentleness, and Self-Control. Let's do something exciting today. Before I go to the review, let's do a mental trick. I'm going to read to you the list again. And as I read, I want you to pick one. Okay, Just pick one from the nine. Then I'll tell you what you picked. Yes, I can do that. Just don't freak out when I get it right, okay? All right, are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Have you picked one? Yes, you have picked one, yeah? So I'm going to read your mind right now. I'm getting a fuzzy picture, a picture of a fruit, a pineapple, a pear. No, it's a peach. Ah, you picked peas. Am I right? And the crowd goes, wow. Thank you, thank you. I will be auditioning soon in America's Got Talent. And if I got it wrong, it's not my fault. It's you. You did not have faith. Joking aside, Chris writes in a way that preempts the reader as if he can read our minds. For example, in the introduction, when he is putting the list in context, the biblical context, he knows where we will go wrong. Chris writes, Let's notice first what this text is not. It's not a list of virtues matching the list of vices just listed as acts of the flesh, okay, the earlier list. In Greek and Jewish texts from that time, there were common matching lists of vices and virtues that were supposed to shape people's behavior. Basically, they said, don't do these things, rather do these things, the virtues. In either case, the emphasis was on what you should not do and what you should do instead. Of course, there is some similarity with Paul's double listing here. But lists of vices and virtues could also easily be used simply as lists of rules. Don't do this list and do this list. And that is definitely not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is not saying don't try to obey all the rules in the Old Testament law. Here is a much easier set of rules to obey instead. That would be to replace one wrong attitude with another one. Paul is not really talking about rules at all. End quote. This is what I mean by Chris reading our minds. He foresees pitfalls. He thinks that we will take this as a to-do list and he pulls us back. You are going the wrong way. And he does this in other places in the book. Now, let me continue where I left off. He just said that Paul is not really talking about rules at all. I quote, 
The key to understanding what Paul is saying here lies in the metaphor he uses, fruit. All the lovely words he writes are taken all together, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. Now, fruit is the natural product of life. If a tree is alive, it will bear fruit. That is the nature of being a living tree. Fruit is what you get when a tree has life within it. Why does a tree bear fruit? Not because there is some law of nature that says it must, but simply because of the life within it, rising from the soil and water that feed its roots and flowing in the sap through every branch and twig. A tree does not bear fruit by keeping the laws of nature, if we can use our imagination and think like a tree, but simply because it is a living tree, being and doing what a tree is and does when it is alive. End quote. So for this review, we will look into how uh, the Holy Spirit in us makes us alive and bears fruit. Uh, and I will be picking my favorite chapter as an example of what you can expect from the whole book. And the chapter is, no, it's not on peace. The chapter is on kindness. Uh, and I'll tell you why later. Now, one thing about this book is that Chris tells us that the fruit of the Spirit mostly matches a quality of God as he, as he reveals Himself both in the Old Testament and in the person of Jesus Christ. For example, the first in the list is love. God is loved. Here, the connection is obvious. But when it comes to the, uh, the portion of the fruit okay, in the list that says kindness, is God kind? That is not so obvious, yet it's so true as Chris goes on to prove. He takes the Hebrew word hesed, which is often translated as steadfast love or mercy, and shows why it used to also be translated loving kindness. By the way, loving kindness is also a title of a song that um, uh, Keith Getty uh, has uh, released, the Getty Music has released, and uh, you can go check it out. So loving kindness. Now this is where readers depend on and is thankful for uh, Chris Wright's expertise in the Old Testament. He tells us that the Hebrew word hesed has a wider, deeper, richer meaning that gets lost in translation. And he guides us using Bible verses. He makes his case from Psalm 23, Psalm 136, Psalm 145, Isaiah 63, Acts, Romans, and Titus to show that God indeed is kind. Now, I'm going to quote him at length, okay, so that you can see how he strings those Bible verses together. I quote, The Israelites really celebrated God's kindness. Their history was full of examples of his kindnesses that they could recount. And here he quotes Isaiah 63 verse 7. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. Then uh, Chris continues. So when Paul wanted to tell people in Lystra what the one true living God is like, he focused on God's kindness. I, he quotes Acts 14, 17, He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Chris comments, that is very Old Testament language. Even though Paul was addressing people who had no clue about the Bible, but the God Paul was telling them about, 
The God who was so different from all the many gods they worship is the God who shows his character in what he does, even in his generosity in creation toward all human beings. Paul was very aware that the kindness of God was quote-unquote available to all people, but he was also grieved that as fallen sinners, we so easily rejected and fail to understand that God's patient kindness is meant to lead us to repentance and salvation. He quotes Romans 2, verse 4, Oh, do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? End quote. Now, in these uh, book reviews that I do, I want to point out aspects of the book that you may at first fail to appreciate. And here's one. What Chris Wright did here with the Bible verses is like flower arrangement. It looks easy until you try it. And in your hands, those gorgeous and beautiful cut flowers becomes an abomination. You see, it takes skill to put together and present Bible verses well. Chris takes a light touch on the Bible verses, allowing the verses to stand out and bloom, as it were. For the section I quoted earlier, there are 251 words. 104 words, or 41% of them, is a direct quote from the Bible. These are the cut flowers. With the remaining uh, 59%, he shows, 1. Israel celebrated God's many kindnesses. 2. Paul used Old Testament language to express God's kindness to evangelize. And 3. Paul warned sinners to not show contempt on God's kindness. This is a very concise and persuasive reasoning, the best that you can get, really. In this chapter, Chris highlights kindness in the story of Ruth and Boaz, but I was more touched by the kindness he describes in David. Again, I'm going to quote scripture at length, but, read, but listen to this, because hearing the Bible is good for you. Okay? So Chris writes, the friendship between David and Jonathan, son of King Saul, is legendary. They both knew that Saul was determined to kill David if he could. But they also knew that David had been anointed to be king in Saul's place eventually. That would have been a big threat to Jonathan, who, as Saul's son, could have expected and wanted to be the next king. So Jonathan asked David to swear lifelong loyalty to him and his family, no matter what would happen. His words explicitly asked David to model himself on God in doing so. He quotes, Show me unfailing kindness, hesed, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness for my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. End quote. I skip forward until the part where uh, David remembers his promise. I quote, Later, when Saul and Jonathan had both died in battle with the Philistines and David had become king of all the tribes of Israel, David remembered that promise to Jonathan and the very terms in which it had been made. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Hesed, for Jonathan's sake. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, 
There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. Chris comments, So the Old Testament then taught that hesed, kindness, was part of the character of the God of Israel and should also therefore be part of the character of his people. End quote. Notice again the light touch on the Bible verses. Notice that he quotes the Bible at length in full. What I read is what you will read. And thus he allows the Bible to speak for itself. I must also commend Chris on how he handles the word. Some preachers and writers might say, don't let details get in the way of a good story. And in doing so, they just clumsily put things together and just ignore contradictions and conflicts and so on. Chris disagrees. When it comes to the Word of God, he treads carefully. For example, at one point, he brings out four verses from Proverbs to make his case. And all four verses have the word kind, okay? But he weakens his case by pointing out the word hesed does not occur in all the following texts. Sometimes it is the word for compassion, which is very close. But the sense of generous kindness to others, especially the needy, is clear. So he doesn't try to fit the scripture to make his point. He does not overstate his case, and because of this, my trust and respect for him grows. Many teachers overstate their case. They want to say something, and they force the scripture to fit what they want to say. Chris Wright doesn't, and he will tell you. And for that, I, I admire him, and I want to be as precise in my thinking and writing as he is. But lest you think the whole, the whole book here is just Bible verses with light commentary, that's not what I'm saying. Like I said earlier, I just want to show you the flower arrangement or rather the verse arrangement, uh, the expertise and skill that uh, we may take for granted and does not, that sometimes is not appreciated. Okay? Now, uh, in one section, okay, just to give you another a taste of Chris Wright's writing, uh, after describing the kindness of Jesus, uh, Chris looks to himself and he reflects and invites us to reflect together with him. I quote, So if being a disciple of Jesus means that I ought to follow his example, why do I so often fail to take the time to be kind to others in daily life, even though I like to think that I'm generally a kindly sort of fellow, I know that there are many, far too many, occasions when I could show some kindness to another person but don't. Probably nobody notices, but I feel guilty about it inside. Why does it happen? Well, I can answer my own question and maybe you would answer differently, but it is certainly a challenging question to ask. 
Often it's because I'm too busy and don't want to be interrupted. I've got things to do, people to see, work to get done. I'm out and about, I'm going somewhere, and I have an agenda and a schedule and time is precious. So the moment flies past when I could stop and just talk for a while to that homeless person or when I could go over and offer to help that stranger looking a bit lost. I didn't do anybody any harm, but there was a kindness I could have done and it got left undone. I was not willing to let my life be interrupted in order to show kindness to someone else. Not very like Jesus. End quote. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I chose this chapter because uh, it seemed to match um, something that I'm observing in my life right now. Okay? It arrived in a very opportune, and I probably could say a, a coincidence. But I don't like to use the word coincidence. I prefer to use the word providence. You see, uh, a young lady I know, uh, let's call her Mary, uh, lost her father in a tragic car accident recently. Okay? And uh, Mary had just arrived in, the, in a big city and uh, she had no friends or family nearby. And uh, because of the quarantine conditions and so on, she couldn't fly home in time for the funeral. And uh, I'm far away and I was worried that she had no one beside her. Virtually, yes, but Physically, no. Then, to my relief and delight, a sister in Christ visited her and offered to stay with her for a week. Now, this sister could have chosen to just make a call, send a message, or just forward a song, or say a prayer. Not that there is anything wrong or less in doing that. After all, that's kind of what I did. However, by visiting and staying with her, this uh, sister in Christ is, as Chris puts it, willing to let life be interrupted in order to show kindness to someone else. So when I was reading this chapter and reflecting on what this sister in Christ did, I thank God that I, that I could witness Christians showing God's kindness to others. It again prompted me to ask, um, am I willing to let my life be interrupted? Are you willing to let life be interrupted, to show kindness to someone else, as Jesus did? There is more to the kindness chapter, but I want to move on. I have used this chapter to show you what to expect from Chris Wright and his book. What I have shown so far is, he lets the Bible speak for itself, letting the Bible make its own case. Uh, he shows care and precision in handling the, word, the holy word of God, and uh, Chris models how to move from the knowledge of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit to a reflection on our everyday lives. If you have read enough Christian books, um, you will notice when you read this book that, that, that something is missing. There is little to no personal anecdotes, sports metaphors, or inspirational stories. Uh, Chris writes, Since I hope this book will be helpful to other preachers, as well as general Christian readers, I have deliberately not included much by way of illustration and stories. That may seem strange since sermons need appropriate illustrations to help emphasize their main points and make them memorable. And certainly, every one of the items in the fruit of the Spirit could be illustrated abundantly with examples and stories. But one crucial element of good preaching is that it should be not only faithful to the biblical text, but also relevant to the local context of the preacher and listeners. So I hesitated to multiply examples drawn from my own context in the UK. End quote. Let me pause here. 
I should remind readers that Chris Wright is the International Ministries Director for Langham Partnership. Langham Partnership's uh, vision is to see churches in the majority world equipped for mission and growing to maturity in Christ through the ministry of pastors and leaders who believe, teach, and live by the Word of God. Before his appointment as the International Director at Langham Partnership, Chris had taught at Union Bible Seminary in India for five years, and from 1988 to 2001, he was at All Nations Christian College, an international training center for cross-cultural missions, as academic dean and later principal. So in his profile, we can understand Chris Wright's sensitivity to teaching across cultures. And as someone who has to puzzle out baseball and American football illustrations in Christian books, him going the whole nine yards is a home run to me. I do have one area of contention in this book. It's really more of an inquiry. His main thesis for the book is the fruit of the Spirit is rooted in God's character. We love because God is love. We have joy because the Holy Spirit is in us. We have peace because Christ is our peace. And he manages to match the character of God to every fruit of the Spirit except for one. Chris says that God does not exercise self-control because God has no evil desire. And in this chapter on self-control, Chris goes on to deal honestly with sex and the sins of the tongue. And he also preempts, he reads our minds, <laughs> he preempts the reader who thinks, young people, huh, they need to exercise self-control. He, as he does so very well, he arranges and carefully presents scripture to convince us that self-control is for the old, the young men and women. And he does this very concisely and very persuasively. Okay? Now, all that is good. My question is, is it true that God does not exercise self-control? Because it kind of ruins the, the, his, uh, what he's doing over here. All the nine parts of the fruit of the Spirit, they're all rooted in, in God's character except for one. <laughs> so my, my thought to rescue this, uh, this uh, framework was that maybe can, we, can we think of self-control as control over great power? Come, let's, let's explore this together, okay? Now imagine uh, the incredible hawk, okay? The green giant thing, uh, juggling eggs. Now this is a giant, okay, who breaks mountains with punches. And uh, as he's throwing these eggs in the air and catches them, none of them crack. That would demonstrate control, wouldn't it? So similarly, can we say that God has this vast power that he keeps under control? Otherwise, we would all just die and perish because our sins are many. But after some thought, my reasoning here doesn't work. Because in the fruit of the Spirit, self-control is not about our strength or abilities. It would be easier to juggle eggs than it is to control our desires. So then I thought, well, how about this? Uh, did, did Jesus practice self-control? In the desert against Satan, Jesus was tempted. He was really tempted, not just having the outward appearance of temptation. I would even argue Jesus was tempted more than any man. 
At the same time, we agree with Chris Wright that Jesus did not have a sinful nature. Jesus did not have any evil desire and his oneness with God the Father was complete. There was nothing in his will that was contrary to God's. So this got me thinking, can we, can we understand, do we say that Jesus practiced self-control over temptation? What do you think? Now, if I'm right and right is wrong, I mean, Chris Wright is, uh, may not have considered this. I, I would think that he did because he is so comprehensive in everything else he has written here. Um, then we would have uh, nine, of the fruit, nine of the fruit of the Spirit would be rooted in God's character, which would be nice. But as I hope you can tell, my challenge here is minor. It's really more of an inquiry, and it really depends on how we define self-control. If we define it the way uh, Chris defines it, then uh, right is right. Who is this book for? For all the reasons I mentioned, if you are teaching or will teach Galatians 5.22-23, you should get this book, even if it's not free. But it's free for this month via www.faithlife.com. That's www.faithlife.com. And Chris Wright exercised self-control in uh, not overstating his case and not getting himself in the way of Scripture. So he is a very trustworthy teacher that I have no hesitating to recommend this book to you. And for... And uh, if you're not teaching, you're not a preacher, uh, as just a general Christian reader, uh, which he wrote this book for you as well, uh, there are three to four reflection questions at the end of every chapter. And as a nice bonus, every chapter has a link to a free 10 to 15 minute video of Chris Wright and other teachers explaining the chapter. I can imagine a group watching the video and, and uh, just going to the questions afterwards and having a very good evening of discussion. But most of all, I would say this book is really best for those who want to grow in Christ's likeness. Or like me, you need to want to grow. John Stott prayed that the fruit of the Spirit will ripen in his life. He prayed this every morning of his life. And his life was a testimony that his prayers were answered. After reading this book, I want what John Stott wanted. I want to grow in Christ's likeness. And this book Help me cultivate that want and growth, as I hope it will for you too. This is a Reading and Readers review of Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, Growing in Christlikeness by Christopher J. H. Wright. This month is a special month because we have two outstanding books. You just heard my review of Christopher Wright's, and the next one is the Logos free book of the month, Recovering the Unity of the Bible. One Continuous Story, Plan and Purpose by Walter C. Kaiser Jr. I'm going to publish this soon, uh, in, in this month, not uh, two weeks later, because I want to get more people to a chance to uh, download and listen to this review so that they can get this free book, okay? which is only free this month at www.logos.com. That's www.logos.com. So go and get that book and you can read it later. You can get that book and listen to this review and, and think whether you want to read it or not. If you know anyone who likes free books, Christian books, good books, then tell him, tell her to listen to Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Before I sign off, one final question to you. Can you list the fruit of the Spirit? Bye-bye. 
be fruitful.